Well, since making known my love for cold weather a few weeks ago, many of you have teased me about it, either in person or on Facebook. This last week has certainly given many of you a lot of ammo to do so. This last weekend, we all got a real dose of winter weather, of course, in the form of a big ice storm. Many of you, of course, suffered way more than we did. I got what I wanted after all, however, and one of our oak trees in our front yard has been almost completely destroyed as a result. So it was kind of a good reminder that it's better to sometimes not get what you're waiting for. But as I said a little bit earlier this evening, at Advent, we're waiting. And we're waiting to celebrate the best of gifts that has already come, and to be reminded of the best of gifts that has yet to come. The word Advent means, as I said earlier, the coming. And as early as the 4th century, early Christians were gathering during the weeks leading up to Christmas to fast and to hold more solemn services. Even today, actually, in Roman Catholicism, even though fasts are no longer required, festivities are discouraged during Advent in order to highlight the season as one of waiting, the building of expectation. Preparation for the grand celebration that's supposed to take place on the Savior's birth on Christmas morning. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, as Aaron said last week, Christians originally viewed the celebration of the Son of God becoming human as a subversion. An attempt to fill out in full color a picture of a holiday that the pagans only celebrated in shadows. We were saying that to celebrate the unconquered sun, the unconquered S-U-N, was to ironically celebrate only a shadow of the true source of light, the unconquered Son of God who gives true light and true sight to all who know Him by faith. And although we were seeking to subvert the old pagan holidays with Christmas then, and we are still doing so now, We're doing it from a different angle in the 21st century, aren't we? Because unlike the early church of the 4th century and beyond, we're not living in a time when Christianity is on the rise in our nation, quickly becoming the religious faith of the emperors and the empire while paganism crumbles around us. We kind of live on the other side of the mountain, so to speak. The time after Christianity has experienced cultural dominance in the West. The time when Christianity seems to be reverting more and more back to an underground faith of sorts. Which is kind of how we started. So how do modern Christians continue to celebrate a holiday we originally created to redeem and triumph over a pagan holiday, as Aaron taught us, now that an unbelieving culture has re-subverted it to a large extent, has made it into something quite different once again. Or, just to put it in Jesus' more simpler words, how do we go about being in the world, but not of it, when it comes to celebrating Advent? Well, tonight we're going to take a look at some of the first Advent observers, the first Advent celebrators, 
Those first Christians who waited for the one who would make them Christians. And we're going to find their story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for us. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Like any passage of Scripture, we could highlight many helpful truths here. But we're going to focus in on the false Advent observers first before moving on to the true Christian Advent observers. So note who are the worldly fake celebrators of Advent in Matthew chapter 2. The enthroned king over the people of God and the people of God themselves living in Jerusalem, which probably actually highlights the high priesthood and the Jewish ruling council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were largely based in Jerusalem at this time. King Herod the Great was most concerned about his own wealth, his own success and position. He wasn't concerned about the worship of the one true God. Herod pretended piety. He pretended worship of the one true God, but it wasn't real. And he may have pointed, of course, to all of his great building projects, for the Jews, especially the building of the massive temple complex in Jerusalem, as a testimony of his piety. But make no mistake about it, Herod was no true Advent observer. It's not that Herod didn't know. Three wise men from the east had come with special revelation from a star and maybe other unknown sources telling him that a great king was to be born. Herod then consulted with the great theologians and the religious leaders of his day who held the scriptures in as high esteem as you and me. And these theologians told Herod that the promised Messiah was to be born based on the words of the prophet Micah and where he was to be born. So Herod knew. He had heard. 
But what Herod heard didn't result in a response of worship. This coming Messiah represented the changing of the guard, the intrusion of a greater ruler than Herod the Great into Herod's world. And so verse 3 says that Herod was troubled. The word for troubled means greatly distressed, stirred up into a riot. And so for Herod, Advent was spent pursuing the protection of his power and the protection of his pleasure by seeking to eliminate this Christ, literally, from the meaning of Advent and Christmas. As much as many may complain about there being a war on Christmas in our day, it doesn't hold a candle to the war on Christmas that Herod was about ready to unleash in the next passage that we didn't read when he orders the death of all the male children under two years of age in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area. For Herod, life was about enjoying all of creation, including other people, not by seeing them properly related to their creator, but by seeking to assume the rights of the creator himself. He sought to dominate it and to control it and to extort it, taking every fleeting pleasure and squeezing it dry before casting it aside for the next one, which is what all idolatry really looks like, no matter how we might dress it up to look naughty or nice. Such a heart is not interested in the fasting of expectation because the denial of self The denial of desire is not in the vocabulary of a depraved heart to begin with. Such a heart is not interested in the work of preparation because selfishness is only interested in what others are doing to to prepare for oneself. Such a heart is not interested in waiting on the Lord, but rather demands to be waited upon. When we turn our gaze to the religious leaders, however, who exercised great spiritual power around Herod's great secular power, we find those who actually know what waiting is all about. They don't have a problem with waiting. They don't mind waiting for the Messiah. They've been doing it for centuries. They don't mind waiting just as long as the Messiah who comes is the Messiah they have requested. The Messiah who fits the bill. The Messiah who doesn't disappoint. For the religious leaders, the Messiah who is to come is supposed to look like King David Part 2. King David 2.0, a better and stronger version of the Old Testament David. He's supposed to arrive with great pomp and circumstance, and then he's supposed to wipe the floor with Rome. And when he's done slaughtering all their enemies, he's supposed to turn around to these faithful religious leaders and give them even greater places of honor than they already had. And what sends them into an uproar in this passage is the idea that a group of pagan Gentiles who have traveled from a land where Israel suffered in exile for so long could know more about the time and the place of birth of Israel's promised Messiah, Israel's promised king, using their bag of astrology tricks while they, the most learned theologians in all the land, sit a mere five miles from Bethlehem. 
I mean, if anyone was going to be the first to know the Messiah's birth, it was going to be them. And so they don't celebrate Advent either, because why celebrate the coming of a Messiah who disappoints? Why celebrate a Savior who doesn't act like a Savior in the way you expect? The way that you want? Maybe the way you were hoping for? It's just better to proceed as though this Savior isn't a real one to begin with. And this response by Israel's king and Israel's religious leadership to Advent is what makes true Advent observance happening in this passage so shocking and so instructive for us, actually. Those who were truly observing Advent in Matthew 2 were Gentile pagans about to become Gentile Christians. And their observance of Advent meant making a long and difficult and self-denying pilgrimage. It meant engaging in the actions of waiting and expectation and preparation until the proper time for rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, as verse 10 says, upon coming to the place where the Christ child was. It meant worshiping by means of sacrificial giving, presenting to their newborn king expensive gifts associated with kingship, gold, and the expensive fragrances of frankincense and myrrh. Because before them was the greatest of all of God's many gifts, the gift that alone gave any meaning to any of God's other gifts. And the Advent response to this great gift is joyful and sacrificial giving on the part of those who have received him. And so why do we as Christians, on the other side of Jesus' first Advent, struggle to celebrate the Advent season now that the great gift has come? Theologian Timothy Paul Jones suggests that perhaps it's because for believers, no less than non-believers, we don't like waiting. Our calendars are dominated not by the venerable rhythms of redemption, but by the swifter currents of consumerism and efficiency. The microwave saves us from waiting for soup to simmer on the stove, and credit cards redeem us from waiting on a paycheck to make good on our purchases. And this backward extension of the Christmas season liberates us from having to deal with the awkward lull of Advent. A selfish world is an impatient world. And Advent is all about waiting, cultivating the virtue of patience. A selfish world is a world that's drunk with consumerism, and Advent is about self-denial and the delay of gratification. Not the denial of gratification, the delay of it. A selfish world is about enjoying victory and power now. And Advent is about being reminded that this world is indeed broken and we aren't just waiting for a Savior because that's what God chose to give us this year under the tree. We're waiting for a Savior because we desperately need one. And Advent calls us to enter into that need, to feel it, 
and to experience it, to reenact it. It's all about purposefully, dramatically entering into expectation. Because Advent isn't just about reliving the expectation of those who waited for Christ's first coming. It is that, but rather using that historic moment and time to enter into our own waiting for Christ's second coming. Advent isn't just to be a memorial of the first coming of Jesus, but also to be pointing us forward to the second coming of Jesus and to lay on our hearts all of the urgency and the desire for come quickly, Lord Jesus. Put an end to all this. It's not just about waiting for Christ the child to come, but about waiting for Christ the conqueror, the judge and liberator of all the universe to show up again and to fix all this brokenness. And so just like our three wise men in this passage, we are still waiting. And we're still on pilgrimage in this desert world until the sky parts again. But how do we go about waiting during Advent? How do we do it? How do we observe a distinctively Christian holiday in a culture that has hijacked it for other purposes? And I think our passage symbolically gives us some clues here as well. And I'm not going to give you a laundry list of ethical do's and don'ts so that if you're doing them, you're celebrating Advent well, and if you're not, well, you're not. But I think our passage gives us a few clues of some ways to celebrate Advent in a distinctively Christian way. It was common in the early church to see the three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, not just as gifts given to Jesus the King, they certainly were that, but also as gifts symbolizing the gifts that Jesus would later give to his people, later in his ministry. In many places in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is said to be more treasured than gold. And this wisdom is found in Scripture. In Psalm 119, the psalmist declares the value of Scripture above that of all gold and all silver. Frankincense was burned in the Old Testament altar of incense in the tabernacle and often represented the prayers of God's people. Psalm chapter 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And myrrh was used for embalming, used by Nicodemus to embalm the body of Jesus. Wine mixed with myrrh was also offered to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. And so myrrh, even as a gift in this passage, was often seen by the early church as pointing to Jesus' coming death, which we now partake of through faith, joined to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. These gifts of kingship given to Jesus by the Magi also point forward to the gifts of word and sacrament and prayer that Jesus would give to us. And it's by these gifts that we await the gift during Advent. We await Him faithfully as we take time in corporate worship and in family worship and in private worship 
to be exposed to the Word of God, to hear the Word of God. So it can have its effect upon us, convicting us and consoling us and encouraging us and equipping us. We await Him faithfully by lifting up prayers of praise and prayers of pain and crying out because of our need of Him to show up once again. This is one of the reasons why our church has Vesper services during the Advent season. This is another reason why we make the, the family worship guide, the long journey available to the families of our church to serve as an aid to these things during Advent. It's also very proper for Christians to observe Advent in a distinctively Christian way by giving sacrificially of their time of their money, and of their resources to help others. I mean, these are things we should be doing all the time, joyfully throughout the year, but all the more so during Advent. One of many ways our church has sought to do that this year is by giving gifts to For the Nation's Refugee Outreach, giving gifts in their Christmas box, which is right out here in the lobby, right next to where the bulletins are for their Christmas store that they're going to have for their refugees this coming Saturday. By giving our church families the opportunity to sign up to work specific time slots to help out with the store. Just one of many ways that could happen this year. All of these are mere examples of what it means to live out Advent in a way that focuses on what we are waiting for a way that distinguishes the Christian meaning of this time of year from endless shopping and parties. One of the things our family has started doing at home the last few months, we've enjoyed it. It's Aubrey's first time to hear the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. We started reading through those. She's really enjoyed those. Ellen and I have too. And in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Most of us can probably remember the part where Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, along with Peter and Susan and Lucy, the son of Adam and daughters of Eve, they're running all night long in the snows of Narnia to escape the witch and her wolves. When they hear the sound of sleigh bells just outside of their hiding place, they fear the worst. But when finally peeking out, they see Father Christmas. And Father Christmas tells them that Aslan, the Christ figure of the story, is on the move. The witch's power is weakening, and the end of her kingdom is in sight, but not yet. They must continue to wait, and they must continue to carry out their role in the plan of redemption. And Father Christmas then reaches into his bag of gifts, and he gives them what he calls tools, not toys to use for Advent. He gives Peter a sword and a shield, much like the sword, the shield of faith and the sword of the Word of God mentioned in Ephesians 6. He gives Susan a bow with a set of arrows, and he gives her a horn by which she can call on Aslan's power whenever she's in need. Used a lot like prayer, also at the end of Ephesians 6. And then to Lucy, he gives a bottle of magical cordial, a drink which will be 
which will bring healing to all the wounded, as do the promises attached to baptism, the Lord's Supper. By these gifts, the children of Aslan are enabled to pilgrimage through the snow and through the ice of the fallen world of Narnia, to fend off the witch's forces, and to await the gift of Aslan himself, And in the same way, Jesus has also given to us these same gifts to wait for him. Amen.